0: keeps us as damages experts really on the edge of our seats because, you know, we don't know what the next ruling is going to be, and it's likely going to have significant impact on, on the work that, that I do.
1: Welcome to the Mintz 11 IP podcast, exclusive rights. I'm Drew DeVogue. I'm a partner here at Mintz. I'm joined today by David Dusky, who's a a director at BDO, along with my partner at Mintz, Dan Wanger. This is going to be the first in a two-part discussion regarding some interesting topics related to patent infringement damages. The first that we'll address today is regarding large damages award, and we'll get into some more granular topics in in the second part of uh, this Two parter, but I want to start by welcoming Dave, who, as I said, is a director at BDO. Um, thanks for taking the time to join us today, Dave. If you could uh, introduce yourself briefly and tell our listeners who you are and what you do, that'd be fantastic. Sure. Thanks, Drew.
0: Like you said, my name is Dave Dusky. I'm a director at BDO in BDO's advisory practice, and specifically, I lead BDO's national intellectual property consulting practice. So the focus of my work is serving as an expert witness in intellectual property uh, litigation matters, where I am tasked with uh, quantifying the economic damages associated with the uh, alleged infringement or misappropriation and providing expert testimony via deposition and or at trial or arbitration. Great.
1: So as I mentioned, when we started spinning you know we had a, a back and forth before we hit record about what we thought would be interesting to talk about today and and foremost in my mind you know as underscored by the the recent huge ring the bell verdict out of the western district of texas and the vlsi versus intel matter this seems to be an exclamation point in what looks like a trend in, in big damages numbers being issued by uh, juries in, in district court cases. So, we're interested in, in getting your perspective and thoughts on what may be underlying that trend. You know, We've seen some in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. I think the, the Intel number was 2.2 2 billion
0: right around there? Sure. Well, I think that there's you know a few different reasons why we may have seen now an uptick in larger jury verdicts. The first, in my opinion, I think relates to the influx of litigation funding in patent litigation. So now patent owners, specifically non-practicing entities or, or smaller organizations have access to capital and resources to be able to pursue litigation here in the us as you all know that you know my understanding is the average cost to to bring a patent litigation to trial is about five million dollars and a lot of patent owners although they may have strong patents and strong infringement contentions just don't have the resources to be able to properly you know litigate a case and, and bring it to trial and now with access via litigation funding i think it really opens the doors and allows them to, you know, litigate against the big Fortune 50 companies, you know, in the world in patent litigation. And it's more likely now that those cases may proceed all the way to trial, whereas prior to that, maybe patent owners, you know, for various reasons, wanted to settle the dispute because obviously ongoing litigation costs and, and the risks associated therein. So I think that's that's one reason. Another reason I think has to do with the damages case receiving much more emphasis at trial. It's much more becoming an integral part of the theme at trial for plaintiffs and patent owners. You know, I I think before you would see damages really only come into play at trial through one or two witnesses at the very end of the case. Now you see the theme of damages coming in through opening statements, through multiple witnesses at trial. So fact witnesses, damages experts licensing experts closing arguments so juries are much more in tune with damages as perhaps they otherwise would have been uh maybe you know five or ten years ago so those are a couple reasons you know one other one that comes to mind uh, i think is sometimes accused infringers do themselves a disservice to trial by asking for what i would consider to be a de minimis amount of money or what they believe the appropriate amount of damages are. And and juries are oftentimes able to see through that. So if accused infringer thinks that damages should only be a couple thousand dollars because of a proposed design around, I think jurors realize, well, that, that doesn't really make much sense because I see four or five attorneys at the table. We've heard how much you've paid experts to be here to testify today. So why are you continuing to litigate this case when it's costing you much more than what you think you know the damages are? So you think uh, it's the you think it's something
1: in the way of a split the baby corollary where you know the
0: yeah,
1: a jury is going to say, you know the plaintiff's asking for a hundred million dollars and and your guy is telling me that you should only have to cough up fifty grand even if you infringe.
0: Yeah, I think that is really dangerous and. You know, in my personal point of view, is if I'm sitting on a a jury and and I'm tasked with determining damages, that means I've already found infringement. So I already found that the defendant engaged in some level, you know, of of a wrongful act or infringement. So I think the odds are stacked up against the defendant at that point, hoping then that the jury, despite finding the defendant kind of being the bad guy to then side with the defendant's own expert as to what the appropriate amount
2: of damages are. It's kind of unfair to the defendant. (laughs) Not that I'm ever trying to be fair or unfair to one side or the other, but doesn't it seem a little unfair to the defendant to say, why are you spending so much money defending this thing if you think it's only worth 50 grand? Because they're being threatened with $100 million. (laughs) You still have to have vigor.
0: Right. And, And I think that there's some rational responses to that, especially when you're dealing with high tech companies that are just targets for patent infringement lawsuits, right? If they had to design around every time they were threatened with litigation or actually in litigation to redesign their patent, no matter how much it costs, it just wouldn't be practically possible to do so. They're they're better off just taking that product off the market. So they can't be expected theoretically to perhaps design around the uh, patented technology every time an accused infringer comes knocking at their door. That's really kind of, I think the bulk of it is it, it's just really not practical. How much of that
2: calculus that you just mentioned is is the mindset for, I think, predominantly in the consumer electronics industry, though maybe in others as well, where the implementer or the the company making the product just says, I'm going to get sued no matter what. So. I'm going to make what I make and I'm going to factor into the my cost of doing business.
1: That's right. It's a, t- it's a tax, the infringement yeah. tax, right?
2: But it, it's a it's a market inefficiency because it's making companies with patents go after you in this time delay structure to get paid while the company who's implementing infringing the patents is just factored that in as a cost of doing business, passing it on to the
0: consumer. Right. That makes sense. I mean, obviously, I'm not a lawyer, but I would think maybe companies with that mindset may... May face some willfulness allegations, <laughs> maybe in findings where they kind of know that they, they may be infringing and, and still do it anyway because they're just viewing it as, as a tax. So that may not be the, the best strategy. And I would think that Intel, for example, <laughs> views a, a $2.2 billion verdict as is, is quite a high tax. <laughs> so there's some different things to, to really think about there but you know what you're saying kind of does does make sense when you're dealing in the the high tech space where there's literally probably you know thousands of patents covering any one product and and despite your your due diligence you know there's likely going to be one or more patents that you just you know didn't think about or or uncover beforehand yeah i think that
1: i think you put your finger on it even for intel who has north of 100 billion dollars operating profit on an annual basis you know a 2 billion dollar tax on that profit is you're certainly going to
0: feel it right right and intel fortunately escaped infringement in the second trial against VLSI because the concern there was if they were found liable for infringing a, you know one or more valid patents could we have seen another billion dollar or more verdict so it, it's additive uh, and at some point, it just, uh, you know, becomes expensive for Intel to to continue selling those products. Absolutely. I want to ask your thought on whether you
1: think those billion dollar verdicts are are going to stand up on on review at the Federal Circuit. But before we get there, I want to touch on a thread that we mentioned just a moment ago, and and I want to emphasize it because I think. These big verdicts, in my mind, really highlight for me the risk of putting your fate in the hands of a third-party decision maker, whether it's a, a judge in a bench trial or a, a jury of of your peers. Emotion can play into it, you know. I think there's less of a risk of that, obviously, in the context of a jury or a, a bench trial, rather, you know, which is why Rule 403, you know, doesn't really play a factor at all in bench trials. I think that that aspect of human emotion uh, can't be ignored.
0: I agree. I mean it is risky on you know on a lot of levels to bring a case to trial as I understand it again, you know not being a lawyer but uh, you know my understanding is to bring a case to trial uh, there's risks on both sides, right um, There's a risk for, a patentee of their of their patent one or more of their patents becoming invalidated, and then they're they're presumably you know losing out on a very valuable potentially intangible asset. So there's a huge risk for them, and then obviously a risk for the accused infringer too of not only perhaps getting a finding of infringement, but potentially a a permanent injunction, a substantial damages award, and these are all things that that they need to weigh, especially when you're putting putting your fates into the, you know, the hands of, you know, sometimes eight jurors that have varying levels of, you know, education. They come from different backgrounds. And, and let's be honest, patents are oftentimes complicated. You know, even myself who works in this type of uh, industry, and I'm not a, a technical person by, by nature, but my work, I need to understand the patented inventions and its benefits and things, and just even reading patents and try to understand them can be oftentimes challenging, and that's what the trier of fact, the jury, has to grasp their hands around too. So it's there's a whole lot of risks and decisions that need to go into uh, you know bringing the case to trial, and not surprisingly, that's why a vast majority of cases settle, as you all know.
1: Right, and so then, and then I guess the follow-on question, which I touched on a moment ago, is you assume the risk of putting your fate in the hands of a third party decision maker you get a huge number hung on you in terms of a a jury award damages award what next you go to the federal circuit you know i i we often talk as litigators patent litigators about you know the in district court if you get a a nine figure jury award you're basically going to have to go through en banc review at the fed circuit in order to collect on it if not you know certiorari at, at the supreme court so what's your sense of, of how the fed circuit is treating these uh, larger damages awards these days
0: well i i think they they treat them the same way theoretically as any other uh, damages award that's kind of a, appealed to them right because my understanding is is it has to, you know, the evidence put forth, you know, at trial for damages has to be consistent and in line with the relevant case law. And as you all know, as, as patent litigators, there's been constant evolvement of patent damages theories and approaches and guidance provided by the federal circuit over the last 10 or plus years. And I think they're tasked with making sure that the, the damages evidence and the damages testimony and, and the expert opinions are in line with uh, the case law and that those opinions and approaches and methodologies don't run a afoul of, of the requisite case law. Now, I think that that sounds relatively simple and straightforward, but because there appears to be sometimes conflicts you know, in federal circuit case law as it relates to damages, for example, use of the entire market value rule versus the smallest saleable patented practicing unit oftentimes is at issue. The apportionment requirement is the focus of, uh, I'd say, almost every single uh, patent trial for damages, uh, whether the damages were appropriately apportioned and reflect the incremental value that the patented invention provides to the product as a whole. Uh, And whether the apportionment method is appropriate and and grounded in facts and tied to the specific facts of the case. And I I think we're seeing sometimes with some of these larger damages awards, some new damages theories and approaches being utilized to satisfy kind of that apportionment requirement. And sometimes those uh, approaches haven't yet been blessed by the federal circuit. So I think there's a little bit of ambiguity and certainty of whether or not those are going to be upheld or not. So um, I think that your guess is as good as mine is as to where the federal circuit's going to come out on some of these issues. Now, we've seen a fair amount of these larger damages awards over the years be overturned and, and sent back down to the district court level for for a retrial. Specifically, I think Panoptix v. Apple, I think that second damages trial is, is, is scheduled for uh, perhaps I think this summer or sometime soon. So that wiped away a $500 million verdict against Apple. Uh, so perhaps we're going to see more of
2: that. How much of that approach from the federal circuit and even the Supreme Court, as we could see from the recent Google Oracle case, which in my my mind was wrongly decided, but how much of that is results driven rather than following the case law, as you just mentioned? Because when I think of high tech, I'm focused on high tech for a reason. When I think of large high tech damages verdicts, I can really only think of one that made it through and, and the plaintiff got paid for it, which was the vernetics. And every it seems to me like all most, if not all, of the other hundred million dollar plus verdicts have been flipped, gone back down for a trial, retried, same verdict was gotten again, flipped again, retried. It can't be that all of those were wrong. So I don't understand what the what the low success rate at the Federal Circuit is on, on these. Maybe maybe you've gotten some insight into that.
0: You know, I would only be guessing, right, as to, um, you know, what the Fed circuit is, is thinking regarding those those verdicts. I would think that their decision is independent of the actual and absolute dollar amount that was awarded, but rather the uh, whether or not the approach and methodology was, you know, in line with, you know, the requisite legal authority and in, in case law, and, and it doesn't run a follow there. I think it's a certainly an argument that accused infringers or, you know, by then actual infringers are going to make is this is absurd. This damages award is just so large. There's no way that it it could be in line with Fed Circuit case law. There was not proper apportionment performed. You know, this is one of many thousands of patents that encompass this product. You know, if we're expected to pay this type of, of damages award on, you know, every single patent in, embodied in our product, it, it would be nonsensical to do so. So, you know, it, it's hard to say, to be honest with you. You you all as litigators may have, you know, better insights there, but I think it depends on on the facts of, of each particular case and the damages model that was used and presented at trial to derive those, those large figures and whether or not that's uh, supportable by the case law. Well, right. You go all the way back to, I think it was
1: 2009 when Judge Rader and the Fed Circuit chopped Cornell University's verdict against HP by two or three orders of magnitude. I think they went from 185 million down to 40 or 50. And there, you know, Rader said basically you drew the box too large. And therefore your royalty rate was per se inflated. You know, that to me, you know, whether you agree with the conclusion or not, that's a, a rational basis to cut a jury award. I think since then, to Dan's point, we have seen some, some semblance of reverse engineering where, you know, maybe the the ring the bell type nine-figure verdicts that we've been seeing. The Fed Circuit gets a little queasy at upholding those and says, well, we got to do something about this because it, it just doesn't sit right hanging a nine or ten figure verdict on on a you know American company. And then they find a way to reverse engineer a reduction in, in damages. But to your point, you know, I, I'm not sure that we can peer inside the minds of
0: the, the Federal Circuit.
2: We could try though. <laughs> yeah.
0: It will certainly be interesting to read each each side's uh, you know uh, briefing, and and kind of get uh, thoughts on, on where they're going on on the appeal, and kind of I mean I think we could predict what obviously some of the arguments are in that particular case, but in terms of where the the Fed Circuit will come out, it's you know to be determined. I think, and I think it keeps us as damages experts really on the edge of our seats because. You know, we don't know what the next ruling is going to be, and it's likely going to have significant impact on on the work that that I do as a damages expert for patent litigation and the the methodologies and approaches that can and can't be used. And oftentimes, each opinion just leaves us as experts scratching our head even more. We we expect more clarity, but sometimes we get more confusion.
2: <laughs> That's one of the things that I was going to say is that like what we need to do is every time a decision comes out from the federal circuit, which is something we would do anyway, is we need to take that as a map. And then when we're doing our next damages analysis, do that same thing that the judge, the judges in the federal circuit said to do so that we try to fit our cases, our analyses of our cases into these paradigms that they're espousing on a case-by-case basis and hope that it fits again. Because there's, like you said, there's not a lot of clarity about what they're going to uphold and what they're not going to uphold, but there is a rational basis that they're employing and we just need to make sure that we stay up to date and you guys, your your side of the show stays up to date so that when we're doing this in, a, in a litigation in real time, we, we make sure that we fit in those paradigms so we can go back up and see this is just what you did. You approved this in this last case a year ago, so you should approve it now.
0: Right. You know, I mean I think we'll get more into this perhaps in, in part two, but there is some Fed Circuit case law out there regarding entire market value rule and SSPPU where it's just conflicting, you have X mark, you have um, you know Finjin, where literally those Fed circuit decisions came out within days of each other and and they seem to to contradict each other to some extent. So I feel like you can make a case on an appeal and cite either case and have solid grounds, but you know how do you reconcile the two of them? Uh, sometimes it's getting you know it gets a little confusing and gives, uh, us experts, a little bit of anxiety because we certainly do everything we possibly can to stay within the bounds of the federal circuit case law. But uh, sometimes it's hard to reconcile all the different um, you know cases out there and, and, and what is truly the right answer.
1: Right. And then you have creative and, and sophisticated parties applying new analytical frameworks to Uh, damages analyses like the hedonic regression, which we will certainly get into in more detail in the part two of our discussion. But I think unless you have any parting words, Dave or Dan, we can leave it there for part one, but we really appreciate you taking the time. And to our listeners, please tune in for part two, some more detailed discussion of some of the the analytical approaches to damages analysis
0: and patent litigation. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both for for having me. And I look look forward to picking up this conversation uh, shortly.